I'm Dave Laird. I'm Matt Booker. And I'm Andrew Savage, and I just got finished looping the D in mail fraud, and you are listening to The Great Concavity. Welcome, everybody, to episode 23 of The Great Concavity, and we are joined by a very special guest, Andrew Savage, who, as you may recognize from his voice, possibly not, it might be a little bit cryptic at this point, but he is the, the main vocalist, lyricist, and guitarist from the band Parquet Courts, who welcomes you to the show and, and outros every episode. So, Andrew, welcome to the show, man. Thanks for coming on. Sure. You probably won't recognize me by my voice, but uh, <laughs> that's, that's good, that nice you- of you to say. <laughs> <laughs> what what made you guys choose that song? I'm curious. So I actually have that on the list of things to talk about. So I'm glad mm. you, glad you asked. Yeah, uh, right. Let's get to it. Yeah, cool. So um, reading interviews uh, that you guys have done uh, with various media outlets like uh, like Pitchfork and The Guardian, Spin, Village Voice, bunch of others. David Foster Wallace comes up in in almost all of those interviews that I've read. Um, so I sort of had it on my radar that you were into into Wallace and into Don DeLillo and, and Thomas Pynchon and other, you know, postmodern writers. And uh, when we had the idea for the show, I was like, what's a what's a song that is like that I would put on at a party that's like, you know, kind of fun and got a good like positive a positive jam, if you will. But also uh-huh. has kind of like a like an edge to it. Like I think instant disassembly. Uh, like, sad one. It's it's got some like ennui, right? Like there's stuff about anxiety and 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 kind of like very human elements to it. But oh, there's like, ennui. There's ennui. <laughs> exactly. There's ennui. So, but it's also like a really like just bitchin' song. So that that's sort of what I was going for by choosing that song. And I reached out to you and and asked if it would be cool if we if we would be able to use it. And you graciously allowed us to so we get to thank you in in person right now so thank you so much andrew and the rest of of the band for that we really appreciate it <laughs> hey no thank, thank you i'm honored to i'm honored to have it open up and close every show yeah that's awesome. know, it's, it's it's funny i was i was once thinking uh i was having uh just a thought that you know if there was a infinite jest movie god forbid what <laughs> you know what song would be in the trailer for it oh yeah and uh yeah uh what i came up with was madonna like a prayer <laughs> love it for blood blood sister one tough nun because <laughs> the music video is uh, like, set in a in a convent i think of that man oh yeah that music video uh when that when that music video came out i was affected oh yeah as a kid yeah yeah she's in a yeah she's in a uh She's in a chapel, and then right. uh, Jesus comes to life, dances with her. Um, she's singing in front of burning crosses, and then he turns back into a crucifix by the end of the video. Uh, it was I w- it was such a sad video. It's kind of it's a you know it's a really upbeat song, it's a dance song, but it, there is something kind of sad to it too. Yeah. Maybe like you were saying about instant disassembly. Um, and don't ask me why, but I guess I think I was just drunk in a bar, uh, <laughs> and it came on, yeah. and I thought, you know what, this is this is Infinite Jest. This is it. Oh yeah, that's 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 a good insight. <laughs> I like that. I love that song. And you know, probably my favorite books podcast is um, Bookworm. Michael Silverblatt. Does right. anyone know that? Do you know that mm-hmm. book? Oh, yeah. Do not. Yeah, Wallace, uh, Wallace on a, appeared on it several times, I believe, uh, right? Yeah, it's yeah. on KCRW in Santa Monica. And 
for a long time, his intro song was this thing from the Mickey Mouse Club, which I just adored. And I, I, <laughs> it was Jiminy Cricket. And I, I, I thought it was like the best Oh, because the bookworm. Book yeah, and then he changed it to this song by Sparks. Do you know Sparks, the band? I love um, – not only do I know him, I love Sparks. Yeah. Sparks. But I was sort of like, you know, Jiminy Cricket or Sparks, I'm like, I'm still like – Defending Jiminy Cricket like years later. Well, I guess now I'm curious which Sparks song. Um, it's Where Would We Be Without Books. Uh, I don't know. Uh, where, yeah, yeah. where Would We Be? It's a totally different vibe than the, the like up, really upbeat, you know, um, Jiminy Cricket, uh, Mickey Mouse opening. So that was a controversial thing, but he, I think Sparks might, might have even like pitched it to him and he, he loved it. I mean, the host of the show loved it. But my my whole point of the story is like just don't change your song. Like when you find a good one, just like stick with it. Oh, and yeah. in your case, yeah. I agree. So, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, never change it. It's I, canon, man. It's you know it's just off putting if so, it's like if you change out a major character in a sitcom or something like it just distracts from the whole show. So <laughs> I I love our opening song and I think uh, you know Dave picked it. He's really like the music guy. I have like really. Um, I'm not like knowledgeable about music. So um, I, what I know can be like engraved on the rim of a shot glass with a dull crayon <laughs> about music. <laughs> and I, I just defer to him. So he sent me like that track and it was like, what do you think about this? And I was like, you know what? Perfect. Good call. And like, <laughs> I, I just like am always open to learning new stuff and hearing new bands. And so that was the first time I heard your band. I thought it was uh amazing intro and a lot i think a lot of our listeners too that might be um their first slice of it and we really try to you know offer them some new things at least a couple times a year we talk pretty intensely about music wouldn't you say dave yeah 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 so last year we did a, a year in review episode where we talked about like our favorite books and films and music of the year so we'll be doing that pretty soon because it's like December now, uh, so maybe at the end of this episode, I'll, uh, I'll petition you for what some of your favorite pop culture stuff from this year was, and we can sort of like uh, put that on, like okay. attach that to our to our list. But uh, okay. so I got I got some. So speaking of, of what we're talking about, I got like a pretty affirming uh, thing happened after our very first episode. Uh, there's a blog called I just read about that by a guy mm-hmm. named Paul Debransky, and he wrote a little article about. Uh, this podcast about David Foster Wallace coming out, and he said, Starting this month, Matt Booker and Dave Laird, scholars and fans of David Foster Wallace, have created the first regular podcast devoted to Wallace. And the intro and closing music is from Parquet Quartz's Instant Disassembly, which is also pretty cool. I'll take it. Yeah, so I was like, all right, we're on the right track. That feels good. (laughs) Um, I'll give you a paratextual kind of... uh, uh, anecdote as well. So we're at the Wallace Conference uh, in July this year in Normal, Illinois. Have you heard of this conference before, Andrew? Yeah, I have. Yeah, we got to get you out to this uh, next year, maybe. That'd be sweet. You can yeah. <laughs> perform or something. <laughs> but anyways, well. yeah, <laughs> yeah, just kidding. But uh, so it was the last night of the conference. We were having a bunch of people back to our house to like have a barbecue and like drink beer and party. And uh, I put on this playlist. Uh, through the speakers called Bangers. So it's like, you mm-hmm. know, party jams. 183 yep. songs on it. The yeah. second song on Shuffle that comes on is Instant Disassembly. Perfect. And our friend Ryan Marnane, who we've had on the show before, he goes, Yeah, Dave, you do a podcast. We get it. 
and and it just like leveled like everyone's it, like just died laughing it's so good <laughs> as if i'd fixed it you know to like cue our, our intro music or something but anyways yeah yeah sure well it's it's hey um banger sounds like a good playlist to be on mm. oh yeah it's great it's that's the fun times andrew wk is on there and a bunch of other stuff you know good company oh good <laughs> Hey, Andrew, can we back up a little bit and, like, you trace this kind of, like, reverse back step? Because, like, I'm in Austin. I know you have some history in Texas, Uh, in Denton. And, like, can you kind of just trace us back, like, how you ended up in Parquet Courts? Yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, so I I grew up in Denton, Texas, uh, which is, it's a, you know, for those that don't know, it's a a university town. University of North Texas is there, mm-hmm. and uh, Texas Women's University is there. I went to North Texas, uh, so I, I was I was born there. My parents worked for the paper, the Denton Record Chronicle, and I uh, grew up in Dallas, and then uh, moved back to Denton to go to school to go to UNT. I started as a, a music performance major. I was uh, I played upright bass, classical, and uh, switched uh, switched to painting because UNT is one of the most it's re- it's one of the most competitive music schools in the world. A lot of people don't know that it, mm. you know, attracts people from all over. You had people from Japan and Europe and all over the state, Central America, going there, and it's just extremely competitive. And uh, I didn't want music to be ruined for me, but uh, I did. Uh, I switched to painting, and I did do a club uh, that was like a it was like a book club, but with records and in real time. We'd listen to a record and. Then we'd all, you know, talk about it, analyze it, discuss it. Super nerdy. Um, and that's where I met Austin, uh, who plays guitar in Parquet Courts. Austin Brown. Uh, we, yep, turns out we were uh, dorm mates. Uh, we lived three doors down from one another. And he showed up to a Knights of the Round turntable meeting. And, uh, you know, so we were, we were college buddies. We never played in a band together in Texas, though I played in a lot of bands. Uh, we were buddies and... You know, he was the first of us to wind up in New York, and I, um, or maybe it was Sean, I don't know, but, you know, the, the drummer, he's my brother, right? Uh, and uh, Sean, he's from Boston, um, actually, he's from Beverly, where Don Gately's from. Oh, nice. Uh, <laughs> Good connection. Yeah, yeah, and so I met Sean when his band came through. I used to do house shows at my house in Denton, and his band played my house, and I guess it would have been yeah November 2016, so just 10 years ago, uh, and that's that's when I first met him. And then so these were all kind of my my separate buds, and I introduced everybody once everyone had uh, moved to New York. And hmm. uh, first practice was six years ago, December 2010. Wow, awesome, cool. Mm-hmm. That's rad. Um, so being from Denton, are you familiar with that Mountain Goat song, the best oh. ever death metal band out of Denton? Come on, give me a break. <laughs> yeah, of course. I mean, that's okay. Good. That's, what, sure. that's what that's what people ask you when you say you're from Denton, sure, or they ask you about a uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show, you know, right. which was set in a town called Denton, the uh, oh, okay. states ever revealed. <laughs> well, nice. I, you know, for me, I grew up in East Texas, and going to Dallas was kind of the big city. 
And uh-huh. in my my rest of my family, a lot, uh, really, my ancestral homeland is in Grayson County, Texas, and Denison and Sherman. So there's a lot of confusion oh, between yeah. Denison, and they're like, "Oh, do you mean Denton?" I'm like, "No, Denison." Um, but I have a good good memories of my older brother when I was about 14, and he was about 17. We would drive through Denton to go to um, recycled books. Uh-huh. What, a, what a great place. What it's still there. Place. Yeah, what a great place. Uh, and we'd go to Bill's uh, record shop in Dallas. There's a lot of uh-huh. good record stores there. Um, yep. And just so many bands. I mean, this is this is probably like 1993, maybe earlier, mm-hmm. 92. But there's so many bands, so many like, you know, Denton still has that feel. I don't know if you go back, but like it still has that feel of like Athens, Georgia or something like small town. You know, it's not like Austin with two million people in it. Like you're still outside Dallas. Yeah, I mean, it's like it's like Athens. It's like uh, Carbondale, Illinois. It's like Champaign, Urbana. Well, one time I was in Bloomington, Indiana, and I thought I was in Denton. I mean, there's so many college <laughs> towns that are just like that. You know, they have this. You know, this small music scene, and uh, you know, there's a university there, and there's a town square, and it's just kind of. This weird small town that, you know, it's maybe a little bit more left leaning politically than uh, the county that surrounds it. And I mean, I was fortunate because when I was uh, when I was uh, in Denton uh, playing and touring in bands, it was a you know, it was a cool time to be from there because there was a lot of interesting stuff coming out of there. Um, especially stuff in the punk and garage scenes like, you know, one band from Denton that kind of uh all of my generation of uh, musicians kind of latched onto was the Marked Men, and the Marked Men kind of created this whole new uh, generation of bands in Denton that, you know, kind of made a name for themselves in the mid 2000s uh, to late 2000s. So it was like a, you know, there, there was a time when it was like a, you know, like a buzz city. Like you, you know, you went on tour and you. People said, oh, where are you from? And uh, you said, Denton. And they're like, oh, that's where wax museums are from. That's where Markman are from. Or, or Midlake. And it's always been, you know, uh, when I was growing up, bands uh, would always go through Denton. So, like, when I was in high school in Dallas and I went to a show, uh, bands would play Denton, not Dallas, because that's, you know, where <laughs> the kids cool, were at. <laughs> yeah, nice. it was, yeah, exactly. You know, it, it, there's weird cities like that. Like, Houston's another example where... You know, I've, I've been touring for, you know, better part of 10 years now, and I've played Houston uh, three times only. Uh, uh-huh. It's another, like, it's a, you know, it's like the fourth biggest city in the U.S. or fifth or something, and it gets skipped a lot. So it's, Dallas is kind of like that. Hmm. Yeah, it's oh, funny. Hot. You know, I, I saw this movie one time uh, called The Parking Lot. It's a documentary set in Charlottesville, Virginia. And I, I swear to God, I did not know where it was set. And I just watched the whole movie and thought it was in Denton. And and it was like I was like damn. Also this... another very similar kind of place, yeah. right? And it was like no, that's actually in Charlottesville, Virginia. And I was like, well, really? I thought the whole movie was in Denton. Uh, <laughs> uh, it, it just had that feel of like such a, a a lot of people had a lot in common. A lot of you know musicians, a lot of people who are artists, and you know still have a small town vibe. It just seems like a perfect formula for bands to be born in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people leave, or you get a job at the university. <laughs> yeah, that 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 is the other piece of it is that you're either on your way out, or you're one of the few who just never leaves, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
So we got the Genesis story of the band. You guys also have a new album called Human Performance uh, that came out this year. And you recently got back from a pretty big tour. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's hard for me to uh, tell when tours stop and start. Because <laughs> right. it feels like, feels like this tour has been going on for, yeah, pretty much the whole, uh, what, six years of band now. Maybe the last four years. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, we've, we've been a lot of places this year. I just, we just got back from Mexico City oh, cool. uh, last week. Place. And uh, a few weeks before that, we had just come back from uh europe yeah. a month in europe and then uh before that in august and in june we did uh states tours so yeah it, i don't know i i i i think of touring as this thing that's been just such a constant part of my life since mm. uh i started doing it about 10 years ago and it has less to do with for me what album is out at a certain time and right. more to do with you're in a band and that's just what you do Part right. of playing rock music is playing it live for people <laughs> yeah totally and you guys played vancouver bc uh, a few months back and i was really hoping to try and make it over but i just wasn't able to uh you guys played at the cobalt is that right uh did we not was it the, it wasn't the cobalt last time though we have played at the cobalt oh yeah what, what was um it? Uh, where, where was it last i damn i forget but <laughs> that is an amazing city and there's never been a dull show there yeah, I heard there was like uh, some, unfortunately, some like beer throwing in the crowd. Oh, Rick, the rickshaw. Sorry, the rickshaw. It was the rickshaw. Yeah, yeah but pretty like co- punk punk uh, venue, like a lot of metal shows and stuff there. Uh, beer throwing is fine as long as it doesn't hit me. Oh yeah, right, yeah. it did. It hit Austin, so it wasn't fun. Yeah. yeah, I read um, an article, uh, like a review of that show today from Discorder Magazine out of Vancouver. Uh, huh. And and they mentioned that at the end. So I'm, I'm uh, on behalf of all British Columbians. I want to apologize to you guys and say we're not all like that. Oh, and I know that uh, <laughs> the, the the Cobalt Motor Inn does have a very uh, special place in my heart. That's a yeah, great, yeah. great venue. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's really good. Uh, so Discorder had this to say about your show. I thought it was, it was pretty funny. Parquet courts were dressed dapper and scholarly in button-up shirts and pullover sweaters, as if they had just read a David Foster Wallace essay and sipped espresso in the green room. Well, <laughs> uh, you, you know, it's not its not often we get uh, sartorial compliments, so it's yeah, there you a go. good eye. Good yeah, that's eye. Not bad. And then they said, uh, following up, they said it was perhaps too classy for the mayhem of the rickshaw, which features classic can-tossing Neanderthals and a smelly, sticky dance floor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sounds about right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, sometimes I like to be a rock and roller in disguise, you know. Yeah, yeah, totally. Can I it ask was- you about the name? So I never really even heard the term parquet until I lived in Brooklyn, and then there was like, oh, this is a parquet floor. Parquet floor is right. And I know that like you spelled it a couple different ways. Like, can yeah. can you speak to that a little bit? <laughs> Yeah, it's yeah. So it's a basketball reference, uh, Parquet Court, uh, uh, Boston. Yeah, that's the most famous. The, the Garden. That's the most famous Parquet basketball court. Though I think the uh, I think the Timberwolves play on one, and technically the Brooklyn Nets do. Uh, they have a herringbone floor, but that is technically a type of Parquet arrangement. Oh, um, but, you know, Thanks, Jay Z. Uh-huh. Thank you, Jay. Uh, thank you, Hova. Oh. Um, and we wanted a name that kind of sounded uh, uniquely American. Um, and also, yeah, the, the 
the homophone factor was a big one. You know, you can spell it a lot of different ways, and it's still right. pronounced the same way. So, you know, it's just being silly. Man. Fun wordplay opportunities. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. cool. That's rad. So, um, so as I mentioned, like pretty much every interview that that I that I see you guys in uh, literature comes up in some form or another. Um, right. So, for example, in the Pitchfork interview in 2013. You said that a lot of your influences come from literature, like DeLillo, Pynchon, Wallace, Volman. Uh, but I don't really want to be the band where people say they're influenced by fiction. Mm-hmm. So um, I'd love to hear, hear a little bit of, uh, like, unpack that a little bit for us. Um, why, why not? Why don't you want to be known as that band, perhaps? Well, because, uh, you know, I don't know. Rock and roll, it, it's not something that really needs to be uh, elevated to, you know, being highbrow you know what i mean it doesn't it doesn't always have to be smart and it's probably in its best best interest that it isn't always i mean there's a you know there's there's a big debate right now about dylan and uh, and the nobel prize and um does you know you know is he is bob dylan a poet is he literature Mm -hmm. um you know that's probably beyond the question. I mean, my answer is yes, but I can also agree that maybe pop music doesn't really need those kind of honorifics that, uh, <laughs> you know, literature is given because it's, you know, it's given them all the time just by virtue of its ubiquity and mass exposure. Right. Um, but I, yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. Maybe I said that cause I just didn't want to come across as a nerd, <laughs> but, uh, I, it's, it's not, and I don't even, it doesn't sound like something I'd say where I would say that is something that like influences me. Um, but, you know, I do like to read. I like talking about reading. Yeah. Um, and that's why. And yeah. And so that's, it, and it's one of those things where it, it, it kind of gets published once and then it just keeps coming up. People, totally. Yeah. People read it and then they kind of want you to, you know, kind of rephrase that in a, in another way and uh you know it's it's i guess it's part of who i am but also it's not it's not a huge part of parquet court right the fact that we are literate right (laughs) well i mean it helps for like writing liner notes and stuff too right (laughs) yeah and lyrics among other things yeah Yeah, exactly (laughs) totally so what what's kind of like your uh your origin story with uh with coming to david foster wallace what's the how did that all, uh, all go down, and, and what's my, your experience been? Yeah, my introduction to Wallace came via an ex-girlfriend who was reading Infinite Jest while we were together and was totally smitten with David Foster Wallace. <laughs> uh, we would read books in each other's company, and I could see how after however many pages she'd read that day, there was this reaction, a sort of glow that she had and she would say oh I, I really want to tell you all about this book but you should really just read it mm-hmm. so she started recommending to me shorter pieces uh, I think the first one was a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again yeah. which I thought was amazing I thought the premise of this really bookish introverted guy doing a literary review of cruise culture was <laughs> extremely interesting and so I got that book uh, I read the other essays got brief interviews yeah. um, I listened to this is water all the while knowing I was sort of schooling myself in his style and voice to prepare for taking on Infinite Jest, which yeah. I finally <laughs> the did. The final exam. <laughs> uh, yeah. Finally did that after this woman and I had split up. And well, now that I say that, it makes me wonder if that was why, because I hadn't gotten around to the book. <laughs> <laughs> 
probably not the first relationship that's ended because of Infinite Jest for one reason or another. <laughs> no, no, she gave me a lot of reasons, but but Wallace wasn't one of them. <laughs> All right. I mean, cool. did, you, did you find Wallace influencing your own writing, or do you find other types of writing influencing your writing? Uh, I think the first the first time I was reading it, I. Yeah, I did. Not, I mean, not just my writing, but, you know, his books like that, uh, that have this very idiosyncratic style that there's really nothing like, they they influence, like, your thoughts. Like, your head, yeah. like, when, or when I was reading Infinite Jest, my head, my thoughts would be so fragmented, you know, and even have, uh, you know, end notes and stuff. So, you know, once you, like, kind of absorb... Uh, yourself, or I guess maybe a better word would be kind of submit to that book or a book like that. It it starts to um, it starts to yes yeah, sink its way into your psyche in a way that's kind of unavoidable. Avoidable. Yeah. Um, so yes, um, I, I wouldn't I, I wouldn't be able to tell so much how much that uh, Infinite Jest or any of his works have. Uh, influence, say, the way I write lyrics, but I, I guess uh, I have to say in some way they have, yeah. Yeah, I think that idea of the brain voice, that when you read someone else's brain voice, that seems like, you know, it's they're saying things that you either have resonance with or have felt before but saying it better than you have in a way it can kind of discourage you from <laughs> from writing in that style or writing trying to to mimic that again so i mean that that is a type of influence but you know i'm curious if there are other artists like that musically or or literature wise that you try to avoid when you're writing uh, that I try to avoid because I'm too much of an afraid. influence. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I, I've got my own ways to safeguard against that. Um, I, you know, I, I think it's a, that's a, that's a bad way to kind of go about life. If you're going to be worried about something infiltrating, uh, uh, because it's 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 all going to get in there, you know. This yeah. this stuff that we produce, it doesn't live in a vacuum. Like we are, as artists, you know, the product of everything we've absorbed. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, one thing that you do have to do as an artist is you do have to be aware of that, and you have to, uh, you, you know, you always have to ask yourself: Is this my voice? You know, is this my truth? Is this uh, is this my experience? Um, and as long as you know, it's 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 your voice and it's you know coming from your heart and your mind uh uh there will be of course uh you know points of reference that you go back to but uh no i i i think you know maybe i experience that more as a visual artist uh because i don't know i choose to abstain from things like you know facebook and instagram and these things where you have this you know, seemingly unlimited amount of images just casually passing before your eyes. And I do think that there is, uh, you know, there is something there where there's this subconscious sort of sameness that evolves when you see all this imagery over and over again. You see a lot of artists kind of, uh, kind of melting into this very homogenous, you know, post-internet style. I guess I, 
I might be more worried about that with music if I listen to the radio a lot, which I don't. <laughs> yeah. You said an interesting thing about speaking of lyrics in the, the same Pitchfork interview about uh, bands focusing on lyric writing um, mm-hmm. as a way to kind of try to prove that they're smart. And yeah. maybe that was like a goal of yours at one point, which uh, which when I read that, I was like immediately thought of Wallace and sort of his early fiction, especially maybe Broom of the System. And we've talked about this mm-hmm. quite a bit on the show before where he's he's quite show offy in that piece. Like he's trying he's trying to let you know that he's aware of like all of this critical theory stuff and, and continental yeah. philosophy. And he does it in a way that's like <laughs> a little maybe a little too overt and and yeah, perhaps show offy. So can you kind of relate to that? Uh, yeah, is that, is that like something that's like generational, or maybe do, do guys in their twenties have something hardwired into us that makes us do that, and then we kind of grow out of it, or what do you think? That yeah, is? And, and and not just guys. I mean, there's there's mm-hmm. uh, especially when yeah you're young and you're really really wanting to be taken seriously, and I can see especially in an academic setting like. Uh, like he was uh, being in a, a master's or doctorate, uh, well, not maybe not doctorate, but when, when you're trying to prove yourself and be taken seriously, and you you're just fresh full of all these ideas, and uh, you know you want to come off as really self-aware and have these uh, you know kind of philosophically <laughs> aggressive kind of things going on in your writing. Uh, one of the things that can't be taught is subtlety. You know, yeah. that's something that has to be learned, and. Uh, yeah, there's definitely a point uh, where I think that I, yeah, w- when writing lyrics or music was more show-offy. And then uh, as, you know, as you keep writing, you realize that, that the, you know, uh, the creative process, the, uh, making art is a collaboration. It's a collaboration between you and your reader or listener or audience or whatever. It's it's the information that you don't give them that I think is very important because that is room for them. You know, that, that leaves the glass half full for them to fill with their own experience. And that, that filling of the glass is the collaboration. And that's, uh, you know, that's a very important part that I think you, you have to, you have to learn that through experience, what mm-hmm. not to, what not to give out. Yeah, that's good. So uh, it's kind of like the co-construction model where like the artist and the reader you know like come to this thing together and bring their experience to form something that couldn't exist otherwise yeah yeah, yeah. exactly yeah george george saunders talks about that uh on a charlie rose interview a couple of years back oh yeah um and he put it in a really beautiful way um so we can maybe link to that in our show notes or something that i'll find that link for you matt he's george great saunders. i love yeah, yeah I you're, love you're a fan yeah he's mm-hmm. amazing hey yeah, his uh, his novel's coming up pretty pretty soon, early next year. So I'm pretty pretty psyched to read that. I just gave my wife; uh, she's reading In Persuasion Nation starting this week. Mm-hmm. She was cool. like reading me some of the some of the stuff she was reading today. Have you guys read? Have you come across that one? I haven't. No. There's like it's like all future. It's like it's like absurdist future consumerism stuff in that book. And mm-hmm. one of the there's like this. He describes this car commercial where. These two guys are like comparing this, the length of their of their genitals, and then <laughs> one guy's like, "How did yours get so long?" He's like, "Oh, I like just tie a brick to it on like the side of the Grand Canyon." So the guy goes and does that, and he's standing there over the Grand Canyon, and then there's like this car in the background, and it turns out that it's uh, a car commercial, and that like the, his other friend is like psych, and then he goes and like steals his friend's car and like drives away. 
uh, and then the guy falls into the Grand Canyon or something. But like, it's she's like, you gotta just read this, and I was like, oh yeah, that's why Saunders is is the man. <laughs> yeah, they're 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 kindred spirits, I think. Yeah. Totally. I, I picked up his book, The Brain Dead Megaphone, the other day because I felt like that's a perfect description of Trump. Is that he's, a, he's a brain dead megaphone. Well, um, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, he's, he's, he's our own uh, Johnny Gentile. Exact, exactly. Sure is. Exactly. Yeah, yeah I, made um, a, <laughs> I made a comment about that in my, in my recent Thief Masters. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it's been brought up uh, yeah, it on the show before. Uh, we, oh. have, we have a good picture of this guy. Um, David Jensen photoshopped trump wearing the johnny gentle face mask <laughs> oh, uh, no kidding with, that's right with a little onan lapel pin it's it's brilliant and and you know trump is also a germaphobe but um my, <laughs> i didn't know that so my, my, i have a question for you andrew which sure. is mm-hmm. about um so my friend jonah who was in a band called krill uh, mm-hmm. he was a big wallace fan and he the, the band broke up and they quit and he became really interested in labor issues because he mm-hmm. said while he was playing, you know, he had thousands of fans and reviews and he got tons of attention, but he made no mm-hmm. money. He basically made no money. Mm-hmm. And the, fa- the the band was well regarded. I mean, you could, you know, well reviewed. They got tons of critical attention and they, they sold out venues and yeah mm. he just couldn't make a living from it and yep. so he said you know he made a better living sitting in a cubicle where no one knew who he was and that that made him really interested in in these kind of issues of scale and labor and you know i'm really curious so like do you ever feel like you could be doing something else and making more money and you resent that or do you struggle with that and or or is it like you know, you're doing, you've found the magical formula. Like what, what is the solution there? Well, yes and no. Um, you know, when, when I, I, you know, I dedicated my life to making art, uh, long, you know, long ago and, uh, pretty much resigned to the, uh, the real, the reality that I wasn't going to be making a lot of money. Um, and yeah, the, you know, Maybe if we'd have been a band, I don't know, a decade or a little bit more ago, you know, things would be different. But um, I don't know. Yeah, I, I do think about sometimes friends of mine, uh, you know, living in New York, that are they're working square jobs, but yeah, they're making more money than me. But you can't really beat the hours, you know. And <laughs> I do, uh, I do like, uh, you know, the opportunity to travel uh, and also just have a sort of freedom where I, it's a certain type of pressure where you, you know, you wake up in the morning and you're not worried about, Oh, I've got to, you know, I've got to be at this place by eight o'clock and then, you know, do all this stuff. Uh, you know, you're, you're you kind of make your own, uh, you make your own schedule and you've got to, you've got to be serious and diligent about it. And, you know, you, if you want to keep touring, you have to keep writing music, yeah. uh, you can't tour off one record for five years, and that's that's how you're that's how you're going to make money. So it's you know it's one of the reasons that Parquet Courts is as prolific as we are because you know uh, well for one we firmly believe that uh, 
you know, a band should tour and music should be experienced in life. But also, uh, because we want to keep doing it, we've got to keep, we can't, you can't really rest and, uh, you know, take a year off or whatever. It's, it, it, it never stops. So yes, I do. Uh, I do think about that, but I, yeah, I decided uh, a long time ago that this was going to be my life. And, uh, you know, I know, uh, for sure that I would be doing music, visual art, if I didn't have any success, you know, as far as, you know, press or financial goes, uh, I would still be doing what I'm doing. Hmm. Cool. So, um, transitioning to, uh, talking about Wallacey and maybe like th- themes or ethos mm-hmm. in, in your music, um, mm-hmm. in the, in the pitchfork interview, you talked about the idea of emotional honesty in music mm-hmm. um, yes. and reading, reading that kind of section about that, uh, about cynicism and our generation and, and the whole irony conversation. It just made me like immediately sort of think of that, the whole new sincerity conversation, you know, mm-hmm. in film and music and, and other places. Um, how do you try and sort of like wed the idea of like an authentic human experience into what you're doing? Well, uh, you know, I, I don't really know. I've got a lot of questions about what the, you know, the authentic human experience is, but sure. <laughs> I guess what I do know is, uh, at, as you know, when, when you're, when you're, it doesn't matter if you're writing or doing music or painting, uh, you're gonna, you're, you're gonna get the best results in your work if you confront things directly and honestly and, um, you know, don't get too hung up on, um, just like trickery, uh, right. the, the the most successful way to uh, to express yourself is, is to you know really think long and hard about what you're trying to say and the emotion that you're feeling or the the thought that you're thinking and you know try to go you know the most direct point as you can between A to B uh, and uh, you know that that space in between is where you you insert yourself and your experience. Um, you know, there's a lot of, I don't know, there's a lot of talk about, or there's been a lot of things written about, you know, irony and yeah. are we too ironic as a culture? And I think, I think that's, I think that's missing the point because uh, irony is not, you know, it's not the opposite of sincerity. You right. Know? Yeah. Uh, you can be ironic and sincere. It's not, it's, you yeah. know, it's, it's not binary like that. And, um, you know, without, uh, irony, we wouldn't have you know, a lot of these great literary works, uh, you know, or a lot of our humor. Um, I think the thing is, is is not to default on irony and don't use it as a defense mechanism because that's going to stand as a barrier between you and your work. And it's, you know, it's, it's going to muddy that sincerity and that, that honesty and directness. Don't, you know, don't, don't, use irony for the sake of itself let it happen naturally because irony can be it can be great and it can be profound if it's you know Mm -hmm. if it's used with some nuance yeah yeah like wallace makes the distinction of uh like an e pluribus unum he talks about like the hip fatigue that he sort of sees as like typifying a lot of our cultural moment um Mm -hmm. but then also wallace uses a lot of irony like he ironizes irony uh some scholars have sort of put it and so mm-hmm. he like he's he's using irony to like spring the cage of caustic irony that he sees as like uh, cancerous to our culture, right? Yeah. Now, there's even been things written on parquet courts, like uh, you know how there's all these uh, 
you know, they have these think pieces, and they're all kind of titled the same. It's blah, 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 and the blah, blah, blah of blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I wrote a couple of those. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And one of them was like, yeah, parquet courts and the irony of blah, blah, blah. I forget what the last article was, but it was, yeah, it was kind of, it was kind of a copycat piece. <laughs> Someone who kind of read that, the New York Times piece that really made uh, the rounds about, you know, are we too ironic as a culture? And it, it was... Okay. And it, it was it was sad to me because it what I guess what I got from it is that um, yeah people have gotten so uh, into this idea of irony being bad that they no longer can uh, recognize you know sincerity when it bites them in the ass. Mm -hmm. Totally. <laughs> can you talk a little more about performing because I feel like a lot of um, authors and writers are really bad at performing their own works but mm -hmm. but with musicians like you don't really have a choice like when you write something like you're performing it too um and right. and i you know i'm curious about how that works is if there is you know uh, some way that you you know make that work while like are you thinking about that while you're writing or is it something that you have to shift into later uh, well, first off, it's it's totally different as someone who's you know performed music and someone who's read. Uh, I you know I I have done a bit of writing lyrical writing that's you know non music lyrical writing and I've read it in front of people, um, and it's terrifying. You know, it's it's you're completely there's no music. It's just your voice and your hands just like shaking and you know rattling this page because you're so nervous and. Um, it's yeah, it's, it's it's completely different because you know, with music you're you're not exactly even if you know you're the lead singer you're not exactly always the the focus you're like a you're like a voice in the choir you know there's there's people there with you to kind of ease you know, take up the slack <laughs> yeah. uh, and I, you know I, it's it's a whole different you know kind of nakedness and so I, I can completely understand how as a writer I would you know try to avoid readings like the plague um, although I, I, I am going to do one in November I, I am you know I, I am nervous about it uh, but um, I don't know reading poetry is different because poetry performance is a really important element of it and uh, especially when you get the opportunity to hear the writer speak their own words and their cadence and how they you know imagine it said um, you know I don't know if fiction is really something that uh, it's it, it's really part of the uh, part of the process to to read it it's it's kind of this to me, you know, book tours and and author readings are kind of this kind of this weird element to it that doesn't. It's a puzzle piece that's never really fit for me. Um, but certainly with you know music, uh, you know, a performance is kind of it's, it's partly inherent to it. Well, and that leads me to um, one ask: if you live next door to like a. <laughs> Trash, like a trash truck uh, that just is continually reverse. Um, but no, I, I mean, about performing in particular, I'm wondering if you can you talk about what makes like a really amazing performance as, as opposed to, like you say, being a poet or a fiction writer is totally different. I think they're just looking for a big turnout. 
Um, but like, what what yeah. what is different than like? I'm sure you can have an amazing performance. It's not a huge turnout, right? Oh yeah, certainly. And I've had many of those. Uh, there's no uh, much to my chagrin. There is no uh, perfect formula for setting that up. Uh, you know, there's you know there's different superstitions. Uh, but I, you know, I, I've played some of the best shows I've ever played when I was in a terrible mood when I was just going into the experience, like, totally dreading it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there's been times where the inverse has happened, where I'm, you know, I'm completely excited about the show, and I, I know it's going to be great, and it ends up, you know, being so bad, or at least to me, unsatisfactory, that it ruins, you know, my entire night, maybe next day. And uh, so there's, there's no, like, there's no, it's just, it's magic. It's hocus pocus. I don't know, just something in the air. There's nothing that you can do really besides the usual, just kind of, I don't know, have a good attitude going into it and maybe, you know, do some sort of vocal warm up or something. But I, I, you know, it, it depends a lot on just the atmosphere. Who's at the, who's at the show. Um, who's not, uh, Right. And you know what? What kind of? What kind of? I don't know. There's just a certain invisible kind of thing that happens between you and people, and sometimes it goes well, and sometimes it doesn't. Mm-hmm. I'd say maybe one key thing would be like, as opposed to playing, you know, a music festival. Um, are you guys still there? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. I thought I thought I heard just being something dropped off. <laughs> as a yeah, as opposed to like playing a festival, I, you know, I, I always much prefer playing in bars or venues uh, yeah. because I think it's a smaller room and the energy is able to bounce around at a lot faster speed in there. Yeah. And you know, people are drunk and it's nighttime. I, I yeah. <laughs> well, and my only experience really with like a hybrid of that is South by Southwest, and. You know, you, you mm-hmm. then you're in a bar at like 10 in the morning sometimes and there's like 10 other people Oof. there and there's like a band, yep. you know, that's agreed to drive there from like Cincinnati mm-hmm. and they're unloading their stuff on the side of the street and you got to think like, why are these people doing it? You know, like they, yeah. they, they could say they played in South by South southwest now but like they all just seem miserable like everyone everyone is just like either a journalist in the audience or there's someone with a badge and they don't give a shit and it's like why did i come here at 10 a.m yeah it's like what is everybody's kind of just asking why it's like what is going on you know and it's very or it's raining and you know there's no one in the crowd and it's just like what what is what is the motivation there and it's really you know that's where i think a lot of like cynicism has to be battled and it's really hard when you start mixing up like this idea of art and you know idealism with your own sort of like day-to-day cynicism and like just how do you deal with that yeah um it's it's gonna happen in anybody's life no matter what they do you know uh or it's it's going to be very easy for it to happen, uh, and it you know it happens to me, and sometimes it gets the better of me. But uh, I just try to remind myself that I'm you know I'm doing what I love, and uh, you know I've, I've got this great opportunity to uh, you know form and create things for people, and um, yeah, I don't know. Just kind of like what I was saying on you. You gotta, you gotta check yourself. You gotta keep yourself in check before you wreck yourself. Mm-hmm. No, <laughs> right, nice. No, I mean that's. I mean it's really interesting. I think just because musicians, in particular, have to face a lot of 
criticism that, you know, someone sitting, again, sitting in a cubicle might not necessarily have to deal with in a, in a really upfront way. Mm-hmm. Um, Unless they're like Leonard Stesek or something. Yeah, that, the Pale King and guy. Yeah. And then you're going to get, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> have you had a chance to read The Pale King, Andrew? I haven't. No, I haven't read The Pale King. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's worth checking out. I know a lot. Oh, of, I'm sure. I know a lot of people have been uh, putting it off or saving it, but I, <laughs> I think some of his best writing is in that book. So yeah, anyone out there, anyone out there who wants to read it and has been putting it off, like don't be afraid, put it, pick it up. But. Yeah, and also anyone out there who has an extra copy of of the Pale King, if you want to send it to me, <laughs> I'd be cool with that because I accidentally lost, I forgot mine in a hotel room in Minnesota a couple weeks ago. I was rereading it, and it was like the black carpet on the hotel floor, and I just had the book jacket off. It was black, and it just blended in. I missed it in the dark when we were packing up and leaving. So, oh, shame. I'm, 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 sh- life. I'm short a copy. Yeah, that happened a lot on tour, I bet. <laughs> And Andrew, this is the probably the point where we should ask you, like, what is your favorite stuff of Wallace? Like, is there any stuff of his that you come back to or reread again? Yeah. Uh, well, I, yeah. I, so I've 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 read I've read Infinite Jest uh, a few times. The first time I read it, all I wanted to do was talk about it, but yeah. sometimes that can be difficult because you don't want to come off as heavy-handed when you're talking to someone about this thousand-page book you just read. Yeah. But I've got a small group of friends in my life that are you know, like capital N book nerds that I can really get into the nitty gritty of a book with and not feel self-conscious. So uh, I was going off to my friend Danielle, who actually plays in the band Priest from D.C., and she had just finished a critical theory master's at Georgetown and Mm. wanted to read something um, a bit lighter. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, then all the critical theory she'd been reading for an entire academic career. So it hadn't it hadn't been too too long since I'd finished the book, maybe six months or something. And I just said, fuck it, I'll read the book again with you. And it was great because <laughs> she was she was coming at it from a different place than me, someone who was a lot more familiar with the philosophy in the novel since she comes from yeah. this Marxist critical theory mindset. And yeah. personally, I don't I have very little patience for um, theory text because I, I just don't speak that language. Yeah, and, and, and so, it's another language for sure. Yeah, yeah. And so then I'd have other friends who uh, who had just read the book and they'd want to talk about it. My friend Ellie and another named Whitney wanted to do a group discussion on it. And by that point, I wasn't rereading the book each time, but just mm-hmm. keeping the conversation going about these ideas I had about Infinite Jest. So over the course of all that, it became one of the more profound pieces of art I'd ever engaged with because I was spending so much time trying to unlock this sort of puzzle that is that mm-hmm. book and I, I still haven't unlocked it and I don't I don't keep up with Wallace criticism anymore but it's something I look back on as you know as an engagement with the profound and I've you know a lot of the you know the short stories uh, yeah there's some that I've you know that I've read over and over I mean I put um, the depressed person up there with some mm-hmm. of my favorite uh, short stories up there yeah. uh, with the dead and uh, certain Carver shorts. Uh, so, I mean, those are, you know, those are a lot, sometimes are a lot, you know, more easier to connect with because they're, you know, they're, they're briefer and they have just, mu- just as much powerful emotion embedded with them. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, I, for, for, for a long time, he was, uh, you know, I, I'd keep uh, brief interviews um, or oblivion like by, uh, by my nightstand and just uh, 
you know, kind of go through one of those again. It's yeah, he, he's a he's a really rewarding uh, and enriching uh, enriching guy to mm-hmm. to reread. I think. Yeah. And it, you know, certainly as he claims, Infinite Jest is set up that way, and I, I would tend to agree. Yeah. Yeah. Can I, can I ask really quickly about that story and that I was looking at it the other day and I, I'm still not sure. Like when I first read it, the depressed person, I wasn't sure if it was like a parody, like making fun of someone who is depressed or if it was like a really sincere like report from what it's like to be depressed. And I would say the latter. Yeah. Yeah. And see, I, I don't know that that's true. Um, because I've read so many conflicting reports that say, oh, he was talking about his ex-girlfriend who was always depressed and it brought him down and he was writing about this. Hmm. Or was it really – I mean, I think you can't write that story without knowing what it feels like. Um, but, yeah. I, but again, yes. I, I don't know if it's written in a way that is meant to be sympathetic either. Maybe not. No, I, no, I wouldn't say it was. With, it, it is entirely sympathetic, or even at all, because there's a there's, you know, certainly if a if a depressed person did write that book, then there's a you know there's a bit of self hatred in there. I think that's that's kind of apparent, and it's you know the story is very kind of repetitive and cyclical, and I think mimics the sort of repression the depression that he experienced. And his life, which was cyclical and repetitive, if you read the you know the DT Max biography, that's certainly the case as it seems. Uh, yeah. And it's 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 one of those pieces of fiction that just kind of forces you into its world and draws you in and makes you you know you kind of are forced to experience. Uh, you know how mundane and uh, sad this person's life is until you, where, where you feel like you're in their headspace. Mm-hmm. Well, and and also like you know I've, I've mentioned this before. Like reading Wallace before his death was a different experience, and that I honestly did not know he was depressed. Like I just thought he was a really good writer about it. Like I. I he flat out denied it, you know, in public or in interviews and things. So it was a, quite a shock to learn, one, sure. he committed suicide. And one, he had had, you know, long-term depression and been diagnosed with antidepressants and actually been in AA. All of this was stuff mm-hmm. that he publicly did not talk about at all. So I just thought he was a really good mimic, you know, because he could also write about all kinds of other stuff. And just depression being sure. you know, like the modern condition. So uh, you know, there's yeah, and when you go ahead. Oh, I was going to say when you when you read it posthumously, you notice that there's also this obsession with suicide uh, because it comes up it comes up frequently and attempts successes. It's it's all over. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and especially Matt, you mentioned uh, one conversation we had where there's that like short bit in the Ennett House where there's just all those selected conversations. Someone comes up to Pat Montesian and says wondering if there's a specific prayer for when you feel like you want to hang yourself mm-hmm. and reading that after the fact is, is pretty hard hitting. Yep. Well, and it's like hindsight is twenty twenty on a lot of that stuff, but yeah, yeah. Uh, it also goes to show how, you know, depression is so prevalent in society that, you know, anyone who writes about it, you can't just assume that they are suicidal or that they are, um, you know, anyone who talks about, oh, they, they know a lot about depression and they're depressed or they've been through substance abuse programs or something. It's like mm-hmm. that's just so common 
mm-hmm. that you yes, know, it is. you can't assume that that's you know going to lead to anything per se. So, I mean, that's another thing that makes it surprising. I think that just how prevalent like the modern condition is that everyone we know is like sad and depressed and on some form of antidepressants. Yeah, and it's a type of depression that's not really um, uh, site specific. It's it's ambiguous and doesn't really have an origin in a lot of cases. Where you know a case where a lot of people don't even know why they're depressed, but can definitely recognize that they are. It's not circumstantial, in other words. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, it's it's that existential. A lot of it is the angst. You know, that's related to a lot of just being alive in this time is really unique. Mm-hmm. Um, in a bad way for a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. Of, yeah, what, of what a fix we're in, in these bodies, as, as Saunders says. Yeah. That's, that's something that I think makes his work and especially infinite just something that's, uh, really relatable to a lot of people. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in there that I can relate to. Like, you know, I went, I went, to, I went to school in a pretty shitty and underfunded school district, so I can't relate to a lot of the stuff about a prestigious athletic boarding school. Uh, <laughs> but I did find a lot of things that were relatable. Like I have family members who have struggled with addiction and have been in rehab facilities and even jail. Yeah. So I've been around recovery people and recovery culture, and I'm somewhat familiar with the psyche of someone who struggles with addiction, um, especially being in the community of musicians and artists. And I actually do have some ancestry the only ancestry i'm really aware of that is uh french canadian uh and i've been to quebec several times in my life so perhaps there was a deeper understanding of that element um but um yeah uh, i guess uh, you know at some point my name was savage oh yeah Uh, somewhere along the line it changed um but primarily what we're talking about what i was drawn to is this thing that i think resonates with most people and that's the book's emphasis on happiness and gratification and entertainment and why we are allured by these things you know um we've all got holes to fill as towns van zandt sang Mm. and i think that's absolutely true every character in that book has a hole that they're trying to fill either with drugs or athletic or academic achievement or revolutionary politics Mm -hmm. and the struggle that all these characters go through to fill these holes or to distract themselves was a really compelling description of the human condition and what it means to be alive in these times Mm-hmm. Well, I agree with that 100%. That's yeah, that's well, that's well put. Are, are the other guys in Parquet Courts uh, on the same literary pages as you, Andrew? Do you guys read similar stuff, talk about this stuff? I think me and my brother have the closest taste yeah. in literature within the band, but certainly everybody... You know, we're uh, everybody always takes a book on tour, and yeah. we all talk to each other about what we're reading. Like, hey, you know, what's that about? Um, and uh, me and Max, we we kind of uh, give each other suggestions, and he'll, you know, Christmas or birthday presents, he'll get me a book, I'll get him a book, and cool. Yeah, so we can, we kind of do have that bond there. Yeah, red. How about uh, any other like musicians in your vicinity in Brooklyn? Uh, any any guys any people you're kind of like minded with uh, talk about literature with? Uh, like I said, uh, Danielle, who plays in Priest, right, yeah. uh, we we do talk about books a lot. Uh, we read um, we did another book together. Uh, uh, we did In Search of Lost Time together. Wow. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> and there, I mean, there's you know not can, a can I uh, ask I, which translation? Um, oh man, it was a 
it was a recent uh, it was like the recent penguin I don't I don't yeah. remember who the translator was I don't have it here with me I, check. I think it's divided up Lydia Davis does the first volume that's the only one I've cracked but yeah that was one that I I, I had Swan's way with me yeah. on tour and that uh, you know I like I write in books I do marginalia and uh, mm-hmm. I, I had I was almost done with the book I had just filled it up and then I left it somewhere and, ah, and, oh, no. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's a really it's Fine. it's almost like uh, I call. I remember where I left it, and I called the hotel. Um, and it's almost it, it feels like a li- like uh, I don't know a bit like being naked when you know that someone's got your book and yeah. they're like going through all your stupid notes where you just write like <laughs> ha ha after something. You know? <laughs> well, imagine an entire archive of that. Uh, you know, after you after you pass away, like that's what well. Wallace has. So. <laughs> Well, the, the flip side of that, you know, is that J.J. Abrams found a book at LAX that was all marked up and someone had left it in a seat at the waiting area. And he picked that up and was fascinated by it. And that turned into the book S uh, written with Doug Dorst. So oh, no kidding. Yeah. I mean, you could you, who knows, like five years from now, someone could find that book and be inspired by <laughs> write something else based on it. Who knows? There you yeah. Go. <laughs> That's cool. Uh, back to the the musician question. I know Marnie Stern has a song called "Year of the Glad," which is based mm-hmm. on a jest. I don't know if you see her around, but it'd be fun no. if you get sign a, some kind of like Brooklyn uh, musician literary book club. Mm-hmm. Get Sufian in there and Ed Drost and the whole gang. I'm sure there's <laughs> bound to be something just like that. You yeah. Know? Right. Exactly. <laughs> Well, and and uh, the Mountain Goats do have, you know, John Darnielle has a song based on or written yeah. in homage to Wallace. It's one of the ones with the Bible verse, Philippians something. Yeah, right. I saw a music video. Um, I can't remember who the band was. December? December. Yeah. It was, it, was, it was the Eschaton game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I saw that, that was cute. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's pretty cute. Yeah, that was the December and then. I don't know. There's a bunch of musical stuff. There's another group called Blamos that wrote a song about Wallace. Yeah. Um, Isn't it called Living with David Foster Wallace? Yeah, I thought it was pretty good actually. I didn't think it was yeah. too cheesy or anything. <laughs> it's a bit. It's it's a bit twee, but I I can I can let it pass. <laughs> Again, I'm not the I'm not the like <laughs> musical expert, and you know that's another thing I was gonna. Um, if we have time for like one more question, I was going to ask about sure. like, when you sit down and like read a book, you know, I mean, reading Proust, like that takes hours upon hours upon hours. Like, do you, do you read music the same way? You know, like if there's something you're excited that's coming out, do you sit down and just like put headphones on and devote time to it? Like the way that you would a book? Yeah. Yeah, of course. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a different kind of absorbing, I think, but uh, one of the, you know, one of my oldest and I guess most cherished rituals is, you know, with getting a new record is, yeah, listening to it over and over again. Yeah. Um, especially because, you know, when you're young and, uh, you know, you don't really have disposable income and you get a record, like, you kind of have to love it. It has to be your favorite <laughs> right. record at that moment because yeah. you don't know, you don't know when the next one's going to come. Um, like my first Black Flag record was Loose Nut and kind of a weird 
first Black Flag record to have, and I, you know, I was expecting like this really fast punk record, and it it wasn't that. And but I, I, you know, I had to I had to love it because I, you know, I paid you know like fifteen bucks for this CD <laughs> back when CD back when you could pay fifteen bucks for a CD, yeah. and uh, so I mean it had to be my favorite. And so you go home and you you know you take out the lyrics and you you know you you read along and just totally absorb it and so that's uh that is something that i do you know uh i do think is a uh, good approach when you are you know engaging with art is to just kind of let it let it overpower you submit yourself to it let it let you know let it just take over you and yeah that's 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 kind of why i'm kind of attracted to you know doing long books uh or like you know reading a you know a whole book of shorts or like listening to you know one record when you first get it like a lot um i thought it was interesting how in the the max uh uh, biography. He talks about listening to Brian Eno's "The Big Ship" yeah. a lot uh, when when he's working. He just l- listens to it on repeat, yeah. um, which is something I can relate to because when uh, I get superstitious about songs, if I find myself in the throes of uh, you know creative passion uh, <laughs> and there's a, and there's a certain song playing, I'll it'll it'll kind of be a, a lucky rabbit's foot for a while, and I'll listen to it a lot over and over again, trying to you know um, harness harness that same yeah yeah of course you never really can but um yeah i think it's it's important to have little superstitions like that (laughs) that's cool so speaking of uh of uh music and art that that's been impactful uh looking back on the the year 2016 which i think we could you know make a few arguments that hasn't been the greatest year for a lot of things um but what uh what's what are some some records that stood out to you this year that that you're into andrew uh, well, we just got back from this European tour with uh, some really good friends of ours uh, here in New York called Pill, mm-hmm. uh, and we've toured with them before. And they, I, I actually I, um, I I put out their first tape on the label that I do called Dolt Pools. Um, they yeah they're, they're in New York. Um, it's they're one of the yeah one of the best bands i've seen live it's i mean every awesome. time we go on tour with them it's always just like you know a little bit nerve-wracking going after <laughs> a band as good as they are um and they had a uh they had an lp come out uh earlier this year on mexican summer hmm. um i really 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 like the kate Lebon record uh crab day that's one that I've been listening to kind of over and over again. Uh, that came out last uh, last spring. Yeah, I got to see her at a festival we played together in Switzerland, and it was phenomenal. Oh, nice. Um, another one. Um, in full disclosure, I, I, I put out this record on my only <laughs> go for it man Ad- tools, adver- swear, this isn't yeah this no no no. this isn't this isn't an advertisement i'm speaking as a fan but opposite sex from new zealand yeah i was just gonna uh, bring them up yeah who uh i discovered in one of those rare and beautiful moments when you watch a band and completely unacquainted with them and then yeah. they just completely blow you away and you're all of a sudden their number one fan yeah, yeah. Uh, so they they had a uh, record come out called Hamlet mm-hmm. uh, that came out uh, last August 
and just had them here in the States in October to do their first U.S. tour. Uh, They're incredible. The record's incredible. I love it. Yeah. So I actually came across the song Supermarket on the Park Accords website last week. Oh, so good. And that song is bananas good. Oh, it's, yeah. It's great. Like the weird pedal effects on the guitar, like it's sort of like warbly. It just like, it puts you into another state or something. That's that's, that's him on the tremolo arm. It's not a pedal. It's, he's got a, yeah, he's got a great way of playing. Yeah, I mean, it's a song about uh, shopping in the supermarket, but really so much more. And like the superficialities of consumer culture. Yep. Yeah. And yeah, it's great. So they're from, is, they're from, New, from New Zealand, from Dunedin, New Zealand. Yeah, they're from Dunedin, yeah. Here's, what's, saw, here's an interesting... That's where I saw them. Oh, yeah, you were there? How is mm-hmm. the city? Because I'm probably moving there in, a, in like a year and a half for a little bit. Oh, I'll be damned. Uh, you know what? It reminded me of... Um, of like a Scottish city like Glasgow. Oh, okay. When I, when I said that, someone told me, I don't know if this is true or not, but they said it was based off of uh, Glasgow, the city. Oh, cool. um, I've also heard that about New York, but I guess Glasgow was the first uh, city of some description to have a, a like a, a grid system like oh, yeah. New York does. Hmm. But it also feels that way and it's just kind of, it's foggy. It's kind of got like a R matey kind of fishing, <laughs> fisherman kind of, you know, thing to it. It's, yeah. and it, you feel really, I mean, I'm, to really pump you up about this, you feel really far away from everything. Yeah, I'm sure. Because you, it's you pretty are. far. Yeah, totally. It's like South it's Island. Where pe- it's down. where people fly to when they go to Antarctica. Right. Is it really? Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, that's cool. <laughs> Good to know. Yeah, my wife, uh, Rachel, got accepted to a PhD program in Dunedin. So I'll be heading there in 2018 for about six or eight months, I think. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a great town. It's got like a, you know, a huge history, especially mm-hmm. with New, New Zealand music. I mean, so many influential bands and labels from New Zealand came out of Dunedin. And, yeah, like a lot uh, of punk know, stuff, a, particularly. Yep, yep. Yeah. yeah, sure. Indie stuff, the clean, yeah. experimental stuff, Dead Sea and Expressway Records. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I, yeah, I, I, think, I, th- I think you'll like it. Cool. Well, thank you for the endorsement. Sure, yeah. <laughs> That's good. What about uh, any sort of like favorite films or, or books that you that came out this year that you read this year that um, were making the top list? Yeah, uh, it's you know it didn't come out this year, but I, I read uh, the first uh, "My Struggle" by Carlo Vicanalsgard. That's my man. That's my boy. I'm on. <laughs> I'm on book five. <laughs> okay, so I just, I just, just, just last week I finished uh, book one. It okay. gets better, man. And book book two is even better. Okay, yeah, I think I'm sold. I'm in. Yeah, uh, I got, I got to get on this guy. I haven't read it yet. Yeah, it was, it was really compelling. I mean, the way that he is able to, you know, write about his childhood so much and and admit that he doesn't have many memories from them, but just harness on these memories that are so you know, just filled with meaning and so just, you know, just, just like, why did he remember these things? Why are these the kind of significant things? And it's, yeah, it's one of the more compelling stories of a nuclear family I've ever read. Hmm. I got to say, I'm a little bit like put off by the title because of like the translation to Mein Kampf, but yep. it's, it's worth, it's, it's worth reading otherwise. Oh, he, talk, I, he talks I, about that in book six. Oh, okay, that's good. So you're self aware. Yeah. That's okay. I like yeah, it. I would say there's probably something to that. Yeah. No, not just a coincidence, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> no, and finally in book a six, tacit nod. He's like, oh, by the way, here's a whole Hitler thing. It's 300 pages. You know. Oh wow. But 
I, I didn't mean to interrupt. I just I just really love his writing style. I think it's interesting, and I could talk about that stuff all night alone. <laughs> yeah, um, another one would be uh, the for a nonfiction one. Uh, there was a. Uh, a diary published by Hauser and Wirth of the artist uh, Ava Hesse's diaries, uh, and that that was that was also very compelling. Um, I read it. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, as you know, as someone who is an artist uh, or interested in art, it's it's good to be reminded that uh, you know a lot of these things that we think are unique to us, these kind of. Uh, you know, professional or creative frustrations or like uh, even like kind of little personal melodramas are kind of experienced by everybody, even you know, artists who have kind of found their way into the canon of American contemporary art. I, I, I loved it. I thought it was great. Hmm. That's actually a book that I'm doing the reading on in January. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. Right on. Uh, and she, I mean, she died at such a young age. I think she was yes. like 34 and, you know, she was with this guy, Saul LeWitt, who was a, a, an artist. And there was a big exhibit here in Austin about their work together, which I found really mm-hmm. amazing. I could talk about that for a long time. I really like, um, you know, their experimentalism, their sort of correspondence together played a big part in kind of pushing each other as an artist, you know, holding each other right. accountable. Yeah. You're right. And it's an interesting book because so much of her work is about process uh, and about the... Uh, like I was saying, the point A to point B, B being the end point. It's so much about the middle space, the process of it. And that's really what the diaries is about, too. It's about, I mean, they are they are beautiful words, and the way they appear on the page is quite beautiful. But it the, really, like the major significance, I think, is that it documents this process, this aggressive process of journaling that she had for, you know, the book is a 10-year span, but I, I would assume there's more than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it reminded me a bit of the Patty Smith book, Just Kids. I don't know if you read that, but, but uh-huh. um, yeah. th- there's a lot of similarities there and just really doing small things that end up leading to big like artistic achievements. So it was really interesting. Right. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. It's a good point. Cool. Any any particular films that were good this year, Andrew? Oh, man, I'm sure there were. All the scoops. Um, uh, I, you know what, I do, I do, uh, I do go to the cinema a lot, uh, <laughs> but I, I like to, um, I like, I definitely like to go see, uh, uh, like older original prints when, whenever they're being filmed, film forum here in New York is, is really good about that. Mm-hmm. I've, I've gotten to see, uh, original prints by Lynch, uh, uh, Blue Velvet, uh, mm. Sh- Chantel Ackerman. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know what? I, sometimes I'm bad at these kind of list questions because it's like <laughs> name the best one of this year, and you know I know I've seen a bunch of movies that have come out yeah, this year, yeah. but for some reason right now I can't think of a single yeah, damn one. Totally. Yeah, I wanted to give you a bit of a heads up at the start so you knew that question. Those these kinds of questions <laughs> are coming because it's always like the worst when someone puts yeah, you the, on the spot. <laughs> the the real curveballs like what yeah. movies do you like? So, <laughs> <laughs> really deep existential stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. I'm the cool. same way like I'm like I know I saw this one good movie one time. I don't remember what it was called. <laughs> It's like had this guy in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, the one with the guy. Yeah, 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 yeah right. was, it was great. Yeah, yeah it's great. Yeah. yeah. 
So I got to ask you about one lyric, Andrew, from the song North Dakota on your first, uh, f- from Light Up Gold. Okay. In, in Manitoba, they call it boring. At night, we hum to Canada snoring. Can you unpack that for our Canadian listeners? Well, uh, so that song was written uh, when I was on tour in another band. The words to it, uh, they might even predate Parquet Court. Oh, yeah. maybe, I was, maybe I was touring in another band, but in the early days of Parquet Courts. And we did this drive from Fargo, North Dakota. Yeah. Uh, and this is in February uh, to, to Seattle. And yeah, that's pretty far. It, Yep. Yeah. It took three days. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when we left Fargo, I think it was like negative 15 degrees. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the first two days was North Dakota and most of, uh, most of Montana. And it was just like driving on the moon. Yeah. Uh, it was flat. It was white. It was just nothing. There were no people. I, you know, there's, there's more people in Denton, Texas than there are the entire state of North Dakota. Oh, wow. Um, and yeah. And then you, you, you cross into the Rockies and then all of a sudden the things just become very dramatic. Uh, right. you know, th- this huge mountain range and all this life just like, just springs up out of nowhere but you know uh, before you get to that it's just it's 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 kind of like uh you know uh, maybe what i would imagine driving through the great concavity would be like oh yeah uh, it's just it's just kind of a i don't want to use the word wasteland because it is you know it's really beautiful in a way but uh it's it, it i i found it just just kind of so awesome that i was uh basically in this you know snow desert for two days just (laughs) it was just kind of this zen kind of repetitive thing and from that those the words just came out Hmm. we were right we were were right down south of canada you know yeah yeah it was i guess it was maybe my idea was it was so boring that even canada's fallen asleep to it (laughs) yeah because nothing exciting ever happens here (laughs) well yeah in the canadian prairies either we make jokes you know anyone who lives on the west or east coast makes jokes about the prairies and yeah bring it is to drive through them all the time so (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome man well any uh any final thoughts andrew at this point about david foster wallace or any of the related topics that came up um well let's see um you know i i I hear a lot of people kind of complain with him that uh you know you know a lot of people's and i think this is kind of like the uh the classic like person who gave up on infinite jest and like begrudgingly says like he never knows how to like finish an idea or finish a phrase and um yeah that's something that i i kind of find endearing about you know what he does and Mm. i guess i can relate to a certain anxiety and one that i think wallace had that stems from this uncertainty about when something is quote-unquote finished you know yeah when something that you've been working on for a long time and put so much of yourself in and sort of defines in posterity that moment of your life and not wanting to set it free for fear that you know you could have done something more for it that's that's a hard lesson for any artist to learn and believe me i'm still learning it i've had songs that took years to write the song uncast shadow of a southern myth i had those lyrics around for years before i worked them into the version that's finally on the record and also with artwork doing album covers or especially a painting there's this scary moment where you wonder 
do I have nothing left to feed this thing, uh, this piece of your heart and mind that, you know, is always going to be attached to you. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's, uh, yeah, maybe that's uh, a good, uh, <laughs> good way to finish this interview is to talk about uh, <laughs> the importance of uh, setting things free. Letting <laughs> them go. They might have claw marks on them, but. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, thanks for sharing your time with us tonight. I, I really enjoyed getting to um, pick your brain. Yeah, thanks hey. so much, Andrew. It's hey, thank you, fellas, and thank you for doing what you do. It's a great it's a great podcast. Hey, right. we appreciate that. And thank you so much for, for being implicit in it. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Every episode, twice. Uh, right. <laughs> we, we really um, are honored to get to talk to you tonight, and after yeah. uh, having you be part of the show, it means a lot. Thanks a lot. It really does. Yeah. So now we have, so we had Robin O'Neill as our guest on episode three as our first guest we ever had. And she does the, the art for our podcast icon. And now we've had you on Andrew. So I feel like the circle of the circle of trust is complete, Matt. It feels good. It feels good. <laughs> it feels, it feels really good. good to talk to you guys. So yeah, that's totally. Great. Hey, yeah, you too, guys. Yeah, awesome, Andrew. So, uh, so if people want to check out more of your music, uh, I know you guys don't really do much on social media, um, other than like seeing you guys live, listening to you on vinyl. What are some places people can can check you guys out? Oh, um, you know, I guess Spotify. Uh, just, okay. Yeah. Just Apple Music. Yeah, you're on there. Just, just, just yell it out a window and see what happens. I think. <laughs> That's the way to go. Love it. You're bound to hit parquet courts if you if you do that. Someone will, someone will be, yeah. Someone will tell you to either shut up or say, "Oh, check this record out." Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, so check out Human Performance, uh, this year's record from 2016 from Parquet Courts. Um, Matt, where can people get a hold of us? We are at Concavity Show on Twitter and Instagram, and Concavity Show at Gmail dot com. We get a lot of good emails. Really like that. Yeah. And. Um, if you want a Concavity Show sticker, you can check out our website, greatconcavity.podbean.com. We have stickers for sale on there. It's our only real merch so far for the podcast. So, <laughs> so far, but if you have suggestions for, for the next mm-hmm. merch item, let us know. We're thinking like oven mitts maybe, Great Concavity oven mitts. A spatula. Mm-hmm. Something like that. Yeah. Send us your ideas on, on the Twitter thing. Tennis balls. Tennis oh, ball. that's a good. That's a good one. I, I actually did that in 2009. Oh, did you really? Yeah, I'm for uh, Infinite Summer. Oh, I, have, yeah. I don't have many left. I only have like one left. But I we did sideshow my group. We did print uh, tennis balls in 2009. Oh, so so good. What Anyways, <laughs> I don't have any left, so don't hit me up for those. I do have Pale King bookmarks from 2011. If anyone right. wants those, <laughs> yeah. uh, hit me up uh, on the, the Gmail. Uh, I'll send you those. Yeah, one of mine was in the Pale King that I lost in the hotel in Minnesota, so I'm short one of those. Damn it, Dave. I trusted you. I I know. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks again, Andrew, and thanks, everyone, for listening. Yep, here we go. Mama (laughs) Cita. Yeah, that's good. (laughs) Mama Cita, catch me now as I say.
like our, our sound quality varies from episode to episode as you heard <laughs> i so, noticed yeah yeah and usually Sometimes. that's like so it depends on what the guest has for a setup yeah so yeah. i hope i'm not uh i hope i'm not at the lower end of that spectrum but we'll see well even if you are i think it fits kind of like your band's ethos a bit you know like diy and punk rock and all <laughs> yeah. that stuff so that's fine yeah <laughs> yeah 